0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the DCVC podcast. I'm your host, Akash Pat, and each week, I bring you angel investors and venture capitalists investing in the diverse tech landscape all across the globe, but more specifically within India. With me on the podcast today is Amit Garg. Amit is a managing partner at Tau Ventures, an AI-first early-stage fund investing in healthcare, enterprise, and automation. Amit has had an amazing career, both as a venture capitalist and as somebody who's worked in the technology industry for the last 20 years. He has spent time at Samsung Next Ventures, co-founded a startup called Health IQ, which as of May, 2019 was a series D company valued at over $450 million. And prior to that, he was a venture capitalist at Norvest Ventures. And before getting into venture capital, he was leading product and analytics at Google. Along with all of this, he's also got an extensive academic background. He completed his major in computer science with a biology minor from Stanford University before going on to do his master's in biomedical informatics from Stanford University School of Medicine. He also holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. Now, along with all of this, he speaks three languages, lives carbon neutral, is an Ironman finisher, and has also built a hospital in rural India which serves over 100,000 people. I'm very, very excited about speaking to Amit today because not only am I getting a chance to speak to a venture capitalist and an investor, I'm also getting a chance to dive deeper into somebody who spent an enormous amount of time working closely towards fulfilling his own personal mission in life. So without further ado, Let's head in and speak to Amit about healthcare investing, being an investor in today's ecosystem here in Silicon Valley, and more importantly, how does he approach all of his portfolio construction? Amit, welcome to the DesiVC podcast. I know you and I have been planning to do this for a while, so I'm really excited to get, kick this off and more importantly, delve a little more deeper into your own personal background and healthcare investing here in the United States. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Akash. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Kudos for what you've done with the podcast and and hi to everyone who's listening.
0: Well, for all our listeners who um, would like to know how Amit and I got connected first, it was during this offline happy hour that we had um, almost a couple of months ago. And Amit was very, very generous. And he stopped by to say hello to all the investors who had showed up. And that's kind of how we got connected and got digging into Amit's background a little bit. And it's a really interesting journey that you've had, uh, which kind of like let, led you to venture capital. And I think a lot of our listeners would also love to hear that story. Did you always know that you wanted to start off on venture at some point, eventually end up in becoming an investor? Or is it something that happened very naturally for you?
1: Uh, No, Akash. I, um, it's very much the latter. Uh, I never planned to become a VC. Um, So my background is uh, I went to Stanford for undergrad and masters. I did computer science. I did biology. I trained as an engineer and a scientist. Uh, I did my master's at the intersection of those two, which uh, you know you can call it health AI these days. It was officially called biomedical informatics, and I actually studied to be a doctor. Uh, got into medical school here in the U.S. A medical school is a postgraduate degree, right? Uh, but I also got into Google, and I made a, a, the right choice for me, which was to go join Google as a product manager. So I ended up uh, spending four years there. And at that point in time, uh, I started thinking about what to do next. And I saw folks around me that I really respected who were also technically minded, scientifically minded like myself, but they also had had a business training. And I thought I owed it to myself to invest more in my own learning, my own knowledge. So no matter what I went ahead and did, uh, it, would, it would be useful, right? Whatever career path I ended up. So I went to business school. And uh, I went to Harvard in 2008, and that's all what starts setting me on this path towards becoming a VC. Uh, in business school, I had more exposure into what venture capital was. Uh, being in Silicon Valley, obviously, you do get a fair bit of exposure, but I had a much larger exposure of what the industry is. Uh, and I started thinking, okay, maybe I should consider a career in venture capital, at least a stint in venture capital. Um, I focus mostly on startups, actually, or tech companies in terms of my next steps in my career. But I started spending a little bit more time, call it 20% of my time with venture capital. And that is what ended up resulting in an offer from Norvis Ventures that I took. And that was how I ended up coming into the industry in 2010. Um, I stayed at Norvis for a few years, then went back into doing a startup Um, and then went back into venture capital. So it's been playing at both sides of of the coin or the equation, as I like to say it, between startups and VC for now almost 10 years. And at the moment, uh, I'm running my own venture fund. So I think I brought all those walls together, my desire to be a builder, to be an entrepreneur of sorts, and the desire to be an investor. Because when you're running your own fund, you're essentially being an entrepreneur, except you're building a different kind of company.
0: Absolutely. I have a couple of follow-up questions uh, on that. First of all, how difficult was it for you to come to a decision about joining Google versus pursuing medicine for that matter?
1: Uh, Akash, that's a very long time ago. It's 2004 at this point. Uh, It's a very different world and my own circumstances were also very different. Um, But at the time, I was a very big believer in what Google was doing Um, I was passionate about its products. I knew lots of folks who had actually worked there. Um, So there were multiple influences. Um, People uh, who were my peers who had either joined the company or about to join the company. People who were further ahead, who I'd heard of, were already in the company. And the possibility that, look, coming in at that point in time, a, a, a company that was much smaller was I think less than a thousand people, I've heard the figure 800, 700 people at Google at the time, Uh, the ability to come in and be an important part of the growth uh, and and help democratize the access to information, help provide equality of opportunity, access to people everywhere in the world. It's something we sort of take for granted these days that you could be anywhere, as long as you have an internet connection, you can still uh, at least access information Right. But it wasn't true in 2004. So I really believed in that thesis. Um, and at the same point, uh, I uh, personal circumstances, I had to balance my own finances, my own status. I was an immigrant. Um, and medical school is a very long path. Um, I, I would have had to move to the East Coast. Um, so I wanted to stay in Silicon Valley at that point in time, at least. So I, I ba- balanced it all out. Um, and obviously, you end up being influenced with, with uh, your immediate um, community, right? Your parents, your friends, your mentors, your gurus. Um, but for me, it was really an intrinsic decision, that plus an intrinsic decision that I believed in the company and its mission. And and I thought that I could go there for a little bit. And then if I wanted, I could go back into medicine. I ended up staying. That, that was right. how the story played
0: out. It's a very interesting journey that you've had, especially given that you know, you should talk about 2004 and there were already about 800 people in Google, but it's still considered the early days of Google compared to where it is today as a company. We don't know what Google could turn out to be. We all knew that Google at that point had potential to be a company that could perhaps go on to become big. But nobody would have thought about the scale at which Google grew and and, and what Google stands for today is more than just um, a, a brand. It's It's they've built a dynasty that can last for like centuries. So did you kind of like see that in the early days when you joined Google? Did you know you guys were onto something that's larger than the mission that you guys were actually working towards?
1: Um, Akash, looking back at his story, it always makes sense, right? right. Uh, you can all, Steve Jobs had the sentences, you you can connect the dots backwards very easily. Yeah. Um, but connecting it forward is really hard. And I'll be honest with you, no, I, I, I would be kidding myself or anybody if I were to tell you that. I knew this was going to happen. I always believed that the company had potential and um, I saw many, many good people there. Um, ultimately, any company, any group, any endeavor that we do, it's, it, it boils down to the people behind it. Right. Um, so Google had amassed a really, really good set of folks there. Um, so the story played out that Google has become, as you said, a dynasty or uh, a once in a lifetime kind of company. Uh, But I didn't know it at the time. What I knew was this is a cool company doing cool things and I can learn a lot and I can help uh, it it succeed also. So, you know, it's a rocket ship. I don't know where the rocket ship will end up, but let me strap onto it. Uh, It will be a journey. It will be an adventure regardless.
0: That's fantastic to hear that. I think a lot of people are in similar sort of situations even today when you think about it, because the startup ecosystem can be compared to what happened in the early 2000s. Yeah, there were fewer companies back then that were doing what um, companies are doing today. But at the same time, a lot of um, kids who are like getting out of undergrad or getting out of grad school are more associating themselves with an option of going and joining startups and going and joining a big firm. I think that whole story and narrative of, you know, we are here to like be part of something that's bigger. There's there's a mission that we can really latch ourselves onto. And there are a good set of people that are here and I can really learn a whole lot than going and working for a big tech corporate. I think that journey can also be compared to how a lot of undergrads and grad school students are feeling today when they start going join startups do you see similarities when you speak to your portfolio founders in terms of when they are hiring for talent is that is that why people are more incentivized to come and join them it's because of the purpose it's the mission it's the it's the chaotic environment around a startup that gives them all the opportunities to then bring everything and streamline processes and take ownership of more projects compared to what might happen when you perhaps take a consulting job or you end up going and joining a big corporate, but you don't have a lot of control, but you have the processes in place. Is that something that you can relate to from your experience back 15, 16 years ago to what you're seeing with your portfolio founders?
1: Yeah, Akash, it is easier now than ever before i would argue to join a startup to start right. a startup to um, take a risk risk right there's a much stronger ecosystem uh whether you're talking india or silicon valley or almost anywhere in the world right so somebody 20 years ago may not have been able to join a startup because they have to worry about their finances they have to worry about their stability yeah um, there's not as many exits there's not as many Investors, there's not as many people you can hire. Nowadays, we have come to a, a world where a the path of entrepreneurship um, is, is a proven path, very much so as, as a career. Um, if you're fresh out of college, you can go for a startup, and people won't question you necessarily. Are you being that crazy?
0: Right. right?
1: And yeah. uh, it wasn't the case maybe um, even 20 years ago. Maybe maybe in Silicon Valley it was, but many parts of the world it wasn't. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I can certainly draw a lot of parallels. The challenge nowadays is the opposite, is that um, the the big companies um, offer so many perks, uh, mm. salary, equity, bonus, comfort, yeah. uh, that it's it becomes harder for you to let that go and put yourself through the pain. Uh, of a startup because startups are painful. You you will be always a little uncomfortable if you're doing a startup. It's almost by definition, right? So what I notice a lot nowadays is everyone wants to do a startup at some point, Um, but what that point is differs case by case. Um, If you are, there are folks who are 20 something, fresh out of university or college and say, yes, I'm ready, I can go take a risk. And there's others who will say, no, I, I I need to be stable enough in order to take the risk. And there's nothing wrong with either choice. It's it's mm-hmm. you have to balance it according to your personal circumstances. Um, most of our founders, uh, actually not most. I need to think about this. I actually most yes, most of our founders are are a little bit more on the experience side mm-hmm. uh, because the themes that we invested at Tau Ventures are deep tech, applied AI. So it's inherently folks who have had some experience with it, uh, have seen certain economic cycles, maybe have done another startup before. We do have some founders who started it right out of college. We do have some founders in their late 20s, but our average founder is a little bit further along in life, and career. And that's a misconception that a lot of folks also have, that startup is the game only for young people. Right. There's plenty of data, at least here in the U.S., that a... Uh, the average founder is somebody who is in his late 40s, early, uh, sorry, late 30s, early 40s. And he or she uh, typically has a mortgage, uh, oftentimes a, a, a child, if not two children. So the average entrepreneur, even the average entrepreneur who is successful is is, is not your 20-year-old. It's mm. actually more like your 40-year-old. Right. But so the, the reason I'm saying this is because the media distorts a little bit of what a startup is and what the profile of an entrepreneur is or of somebody who is part of a startup is. Yeah. Um, I see now a much larger diversity of backgrounds in any startup that I'm looking at or that I've invested in.
0: Mm. Some interesting points that popped up. And I also want to go back to one of the earlier things that you mentioned in, in one of the answers was that you joined Venture about 11 years ago. So what was your perception about the venture ecosystem when you first entered it and what are some of the myths that got busted as soon as you started working as a venture capitalist
1: well Akash, the thing is that the venture industry has evolved very much so in these 10 years 11 years right um so what was true when i joined um or what was thought to be true at that point has also changed Mm -hmm. um so it's hard to compare like the industry is evolving at all times Right. Um, and in when it, when you're dealing with startups, entrepreneurship, venture capital in general, the industry evolves very quickly. Um, some other industries are are all industries, I would argue, are evolving, but they are evolving much slower. Yeah. Right. So the principles um, have held uh, the principles that I will mention now may not be true 10 years from now. Right. Uh, let's take valuations. Let's take dilutions. Let's take average round sizes. Let's take. Um, whether you should take liquidation preferences or not, like all of these things have changed. Uh, 10 years ago, I did do a term sheet that had a pref of 3X. Mm-hmm. That's almost unheard of now. Yeah. Um, uh, 10 years ago, you would raise maybe a 5 million in a Series A, and you would contemplate the exit as an IPO, maybe at 400, 500 million, right? Nowadays, a Series A is um, just in terms of the amount at least can even be a pre-seed. I've seen pre-seeds that are Series A. What okay. hasn't changed is the definition. The definition, actually, there was no such thing as a pre-seed 10 years ago. Right. Uh, we, we used to call it family and friends, uh, or the prototype, or sorry, the PowerPoint stage. Um, what hasn't changed, I think, is some underlying principles, right? The, the fact that a team always matters, always the most. Uh, the weight that you give to team changes over time. Um, at the early stages, the team is everything. Mm-hmm. At a later stage, a team is still the single most important thing, but there's other business metrics to evaluate, ARR, churn, LTV, CAC, right? So that has stayed true. And uh, venture mm-hmm. capital, that I think is one of the things that will always stay true because venture capital is primarily investing in things that have the potential to grow explosively. And you grow explosively when your biggest asset is your people. It's not machinery. It's not factories. It's not things that require a lot of time and money to put together. It's people who can adapt much more quickly. Um, So I think that principle is still very much true. Um, I think the single biggest difference is that the pendulum has swung back and forth between deal terms being more favorable to entrepreneurs or to VCs. And that pendulum is always swinging back and forth. Uh, 10 years ago was a different case. Now it's a different case. 10 years from now, it may be a different case. Uh, But what I think has remained true is that there are overlapping interests between an investor and an entrepreneur. And there's also disconnected interest. What what is best for an entrepreneur and what is best for a VC are not perfectly aligned. But there's a big space where they're perfectly aligned. And I think what was important then and what's important now is for both sides to play within that intersection. If you play on one side over the other, that's where you end up with um, horror stories or entrepreneurs complaining about VCs and vice versa, right? Like this is a partnership at the end of the day.
0: Could you elaborate a little bit more on that for our listeners to understand how these can look very different for the founders and investors? And maybe an example that you may have seen and come across as an investor yourself
1: um look there's many many things that you can do that may be more favorable to the company um less favorable to an investor right uh, and sometimes it gets even more lopsided where it can be disfavorable to an investor or disfavorable to the company right um let me give a hypothetical situation uh, I'm an entrepreneur and I have a decision to make and I could say okay I have a million dollars right now and I could spend this million dollar to grow the company further and there's a 10% chance that it will grow by 10 million.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's a 90% chance that it will fail. Right. So do I take that bet?
0: Mm-hmm. And as a
1: VC, I might say, yes, take the bet because I want the moonshot. I want the possibility of a 10 X, right? So a company may say, no, I don't want to do that. And then VC might say, yes, I do want you to do that. There's a, there's a, um, difference in incentives because the entrepreneur is their incentive is to make sure that the company stays alive and that it continues succeeding. And that's an entrepreneur is running that only company, right? Like this is it, all their eggs are in one basket. As we say here in the U S versus for a VC, you're typically building a portfolio. So if any one company fails, it's not going to kill you. What you're looking for is within your portfolio, within your, let's say 10 investments, you have a diversity of outcomes such that overall you end up with a three to five X in your portfolio. That's the, that's, if you end up with a three to five X, you're doing really well as a VC, by the way. So it's a difference between having one shot versus having 10 shots. Right. And that will create different behaviors Mm -hmm. between an investor and an entrepreneur. I think that's, that's the highest level way I can summarize it in terms of how you can act differently given your inherent interests.
0: That's a great way of putting it. And I think I'll go a step further and ask you, given your own experience coming across similar situations yourself, how difficult or easy is it for you to have a conversation with a founder? It could be an existing portfolio founder for a later stage, or it could be a new founder that you may be looking to invest in. How easy is it for you to have this conversation and bring this out and break it down in terms of explaining to them that, hey, listen, you got to take a bigger shot here than you think you're, you're setting yourself up for. Like they may be realistic in saying, we're going to look at a steady growth. This is going to be a year-on-year year or month-on-month month growth. But you're expecting them to grow faster, and you think capital is going to help them do so. How do those conversations typically play out? And how often do founders, or how open are founders to accepting this sort of feedback from from VCs like yourself? And more importantly, incorporate that and take it forward, given you know some of the conversations like this could also be with existing founders within your portfolio.
1: Yeah, Akash so this is a summary of the um, incentive structure, I guess. There's a lot of nuances to it because there's a lot of specifics to it. And the specifics may change based on the company, the entrepreneur and the VC, right? Um, But overall, these conversations happen all the time. Um, They happen during the diligence process when both sides are trying to get to know each other. Um, For instance, I as a VC will ask the entrepreneur, what's your vision for the company? Where do you want to take it? And the entrepreneur is also understanding, where can this VC help me? How will they help me? Uh, are, are they on the same page as where I want to take the company? right? Because um, I like to say that uh, while well, hiring and firing an employee is hard, hiring and firing a VC is even harder. It's the hardest thing. right? Like, If, if you are uh, deciding to partner with a venture capitalist, you are potentially partnering for 10 years. Yeah. Um, and it's truly a marriage. It's a marriage of interest. It's a marriage, uh, of, of, uh, vision. Um, because if you don't, if you disagree between your investor and yourself, really the only way is for the investor to sell the ownership to another investor. Right. There's no other easy way of parting ways. Um, you can't just fire quote unquote, the VC. Um, so in terms of the disconnect that you're talking about, those, those conversations happen a lot during the diligence process. But once you hire invested, they also happen on a day-by-day basis with the company. It's the small things and big things. I could say, hey, look, you're thinking of hiring five people, but I think you can actually afford to hire six people. Or the entrepreneur may say, I'm thinking of actually pursuing these two contracts rather than this other contract. And I might say, well, I think there's a way to do all three. Let's think about it, right? Um, I want to caution here, though, that a VC always knows less than the entrepreneur. What a VC does is look at breadth. We look at a lot of things. We understand a lot of trends in the market. Um, Some entrepreneurs make the joke, VCs are a a mile wide, but an inch deep, right? Like we, the joke is that we, we, we have a lot of knowledge, but it's not necessarily as deep as the knowledge of an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, you should know more about what you're doing in your company for sure than your investors. If you're not, then that's bad news, right? And the attitude of a good VC should also be the same. That look, this person here, is running the ship. They are the captain. I'm the first mate. I'm here to help. I'm here to challenge. I'm here to clean the floors if need be, but I'm here as a partner. I'm not running the company. If you're running the company, then that's not venture capital. At that point it's private equity, right? At that point, it's a different kind of investor. So uh, I think it's a fine balance between both humility and confidence where both sides have to recognize, and both sides, by the way, tend to have similar personalities. They're driven people right? But both sides have to recognize that, look, somebody here is is in charge, and the other person here is as a conciliary, as an advisor, and a very good advisor, and that you will have disagreements. And how do you come up with a better decision through these disagreements? That's the key. Um, Oftentimes, an entrepreneur will say A, and the VC will say B, and the best answer is actually C. And it's in the dialectic between the A and the B that you come up with the C.
0: That's a very good way of putting it. And I think the toughest job that a founder has among, I mean, building the company, running it, hiring people, is also identifying who are the best investors to bring on board. And I don't think, I mean, at least in my experience, and you correct me if I'm wrong, obviously you spend more time in venture capital than I have, but when I look at emerging markets, When i see first-time entrepreneurs that's where the learning experience comes about especially when you go out and build your company the second time around you understand that your cap table construction is perhaps one of the most important things is still a very underrated skill set of a founder in any country in any geography is bringing on the right investor the right point who can actually add value than just capital yeah there are a few people who bring capital and that's enough for a lot of founders because they don't want a whole lot of hand-holding given the factors that you said they have a lot of experience and expertise and and network in the space so it's sometimes just the money that they require but there are a lot of founders who go up well oh,
1: akash, akash if if money is all you require then don't go talk to vcs there's right. many easier ways of raising yeah. money um go get a bank loan fund yourself mm-hmm. through revenues get a grant get Uh, a credit line from a bank. Like there's so many other ways of raising capital that are way, way easier than getting it from a venture capitalist. If you're going for a VC is because venture capital has two words, venture and capital. It's because you value the venture side also. And Mm -hmm. I would argue the venture side of it is more important than the capital side, right? Capital is fungible to a certain degree, venture is not. The experience, the expertise, the network, the introductions, the governance, everything else that a VC provides, that's what's really unique, special, and that can help change the trajectory of a company um, from being, you know, I guess this is a podcast, so I can't illustrate it with my hands, but from being basically instead of linear and exponential growth, right? Right. So uh, I, I think your point, you want as an entrepreneur, to diligence the VC also, a diligence process for raising a fund, for raising funding is both ways. It's a two-way street. Yeah. And I know there's some geographies where the density of VCs is much lower. So you don't necessarily have the luxury of, of being able to pick um, the right VC, but then optimize for it as much as possible. Um, Silicon Valley, for instance, does have tons and tons of VCs. So I tell them, Go for the best one, not not for the highest valuation, not for the highest round size, not for the shiniest logo, not for um, whatever else. Go for the right person who is going to help you the most on a day to day basis, perhaps, because that's what's really valuable.
0: That's right. I think it's a good transition to one of the questions that I had, which I was going to bring on later in the episode. But I think since we brought this up and there is no right answer, I think, for this, or there could be. You tell me if, if if there's one. When for instance you're putting together a round and there are sector specific vc funds like yours who are, who invest in in healthcare and there are agnostic investors if i'm a founder today what's your advice in terms of what's the right mix of bringing in the capital ensuring that i have a good combination of both spec- uh, sector specific vcs as well as agnostic vcs who who bring something very different to the table, if you know what I mean.
1: Well, Akash, I think there is a right answer. Uh, uh-huh. And the right answer is, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> because it's the right answer is that it's not a, a one-size-fits-all. Right. The right answer is, let's ask the following questions. What is your experience? What do you bring on the table as an entrepreneur already? What is the market you're playing in? Where yeah. do you want to take the company, right? Once you can answer all of these questions, then you can decide, Do I need a VC who is specialized in my sector, in my space, who can really, really add a lot of rocket fuel to my engine? Uh, Or do I want a generalist? Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm building, let me make up a more concrete example, a consumer-focused company in India, um, then somebody who is healthcare-focused in the US is definitely not the right fit for you. Right. It's probably somebody in India who understands the consumer dynamics, who may be a generalist, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you're building a consumer focused company, maybe somebody who does many things uh, is is the right bet for you. But now if you are raising money to build a computer vision for colon cancer, or machine learning for drug discovery or next generation sequencing for detecting infectious diseases. These are all, by the way, real examples from our current portfolio. Right. Would having a VC with the expertise in these particular areas be meaningfully helpful? I would argue yes. Of course, right. So, um, as much as possible, I encourage, depending on the ecosystem, depending on what you, uh, your your set of advisors, your team, your personal experience, you decide what do you want in an investor, and you optimize for that. Right. Um, as much as possible, I do think the bias should be bring value-add investors as much as possible, but you don't need to necessarily go all the way if you don't need to, right? I am a specialized fund because I am focused on the US and Canada. Uh, I focus on applied AI, so artificial intelligence. I focus on the health side. My partner focuses on the enterprise side. We have a 40 million AUM, two-year-old fund, just about 30 deals. My profile of investments is a very different profile of investments of somebody who is a billion dollar fund Mm-hmm. who's operating across many sectors, who may even be geographic agnostic, operating out of Sand Hill Road, which is one of the main arteries here in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Or it may be a very different profile than a $100 billion fund out of Japan that is doing 5 to $10 billion deals. Um, you know, I'm alluding here to SoftBank, right? So the, the, the metrics of a fund, the vision of a fund, the type of investments that a fund will make will also be different. And I think the matching process is for an entrepreneur to recognize that VCs come in different size, shapes, and flavors, that not every VC is right for you. And there's a universe of VCs that will be right for you. And once you decide what the universe is, what are the factors you want to optimize for when you decide to bring that VC on board?
0: I think that's great advice. A lot of founders can resonate and take away um, a lot from, from what you just mentioned. I think that's more importantly, one one thing that really stood out to me in, in, that, in that answer was understanding yourself as a founder, understanding what skill sets you and your team bring to the table and where are the deficiencies for you to then go out and say, this is really where I need support. And I think this investor or these set of people have that. And that's basically where I will be strengthening my, you know, my arsenal. And that I think is very important with a lot, which a lot of founders need to do so before even starting a fundraise. Don't you think so?
1: Yeah. And let me give a concrete example. I can talk about this one because the company has exited. So we invested in a company called Totient. T-O-T-I-E-N-T. It is drug discovery using machine learning. So the problem is if you're a pharmaceutical company corporation, you may spend 10 years and a billion dollars to come up with a drug. That's extremely onerous. It's almost unsustainable as a business model. Very few companies can do that. What Totient was doing was saying, Hey, look, I can analyze a lot more targets. And if I'm able to improve even by 10%, the output, that is huge. I can save you millions of dollars in multiple years of drug development. So when we invested, the deal was being led by Mission Bio. Uh, It's another VC fund out of Boston. They're experts in biotech. We looked at that and said, okay, they understand the biotech. We understand the AI. And the entrepreneur himself also realized in this case that these two VCs provide different values to me and fulfill what I'm trying to do, which is basically AI for drug discovery has elements of both, right? Of biotech and um, artificial intelligence, right? I'm not a biotech expert. I understand it enough that I can do something with it. I know digital health really deeply, but not biotech. And the other investor knew biotech really well. So the the entrepreneur built a syndicate and i'm simplifying it hugely because there's a lot more to it but in this case mission bio was based in, is based in boston we're based in silicon valley so the, the entrepreneur also optimized for different networks um and uh different sizes of funds mission bio is a bigger fund it's 10 times bigger than us uh at the time at least it was 10 times bigger we are now bigger uh in in size so it's i think a difference of maybe four to five x between our fund size but that also creates a different dynamic right you have A VC fund who is leading the deal, who is setting the terms, and other VCs who are coming in into the deal as follows, right? So I always encourage an entrepreneur, think about your investment syndicate as basically a puzzle, and you want to put the pieces into this puzzle in the best way possible, right? If you're building a company that will require different skill sets, you're unlikely to get that skill set all from the same investor, and that's fine then purposely built an investment syndicate where you optimize for these different things. And if you put all the pieces together in the best way possible, one plus one becomes 11, because you will suddenly get the best advice from multiple people who will open up multiple doors, who will do multiple introductions, and that will be there with you all the way till the end of the journey. In this particular case, Toshind actually got sold, and then the company that acquired it went IPO at $2.1 billion. So that is a massive outcome, right? And I think that this outcome, obviously, 99% of the credit here goes to the team, to the entrepreneurs. But I would like to think very much so that some of this outcome is because of all of us around the table who actively helped the company, especially when it needed, because the company went through ups and downs like most startups. And when it really needed, the, the most engaged VCs really, really helped the company.
0: Very interesting. So does this come up when you have a conversation with the founder at the outset? So for instance, you've just begun to like have an interest in this company, you've had, you've done diligence, you want to invest in this company. Do you then have this conversation with the founders and talk to them about how they're trying to fill the round up, Or is that something that you as a venture capitalist does not you know, venture into right away and you're like, you no, know no, what?
1: absolutely. All the time, all the time. Yeah. So we invest, let me give another example, because I think it makes it easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, we invested recently in a company called Hey Renee. Um, and uh, the co-founders are Nick and Renee Dua, Nick Desai and Renee Dua. They're uh, co-founders previously of another company called Heal uh, mm-hmm. that ha- they raised 200 million for. Um, so these are founders who are proven in many ways and um, they're savvy. So uh, upfront, I asked him the question, not even after one or two conversations upfront. It's like, how are you thinking about the syndicate? Who will be leading? How big of a round size? Why this round size? What is the valuation you're thinking? And Nick offered as the CEO, offered some great insights, great answers to that. All of it made sense. And then we still had the dialogue of how much we as Tao Ventures want to put in. And at some point he had too much interest around his company. So he actually asked me if I could take a step back, if I could put in less. Now I have my own interest. I wanted to put in more money into the company, but I also want to make sure that there's enough good people that come and help the company. So I told them hey, I'm willing to go down by 10%. Um, I don't want to go below that, but I'm willing to take the amount I would put in and go down by 10, so that if other people also do the same, you suddenly have room to bring in another investor. And okay. by bringing in another investor, we will have an even stronger syndicate that increases the probability of your success. By me taking a step back, I actually increase the size of the pie enough that once there is a liquidity event, once the company gets sold or IPO, that me taking a step back actually improve the odds of me having a, a larger uh, exit, right? So those are the calculations that go on into both the VC and the entrepreneur's head. And it's a, it's a tangle. It's a dance. You both dance and you both try to figure this out. Um, in this particular case, Nick actually decided wisely to get oversubscribed. He ended up raising uh, just a little bit more, 3.8 million than what he was intending to, allowing enough VCs to come in for as much as close to the allocation that they wanted. So All of us are reasonably happy, maybe not perfectly happy because not everybody got exactly what they wanted, but we all got pretty close. I actually got what I wanted. So I'm very grateful to Nick for having created the space for me to be able to put as much as I wanted. Um, And this is is what I want to illustrate to to an entrepreneur. That is the start of your relationship. You start off by figuring out what the other person's interest is, what your interest is, and where do you fit? Where can you align between these interests? As you move forward, 90% of the work happens after the investment. It happens in board meetings. It happens in one-on-ones. It happens in the potentially 10 years you will work together. So the investment process is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. And what I just illustrated is is the mutual dance that happened. These mutual dances happen all throughout the life of the company.
0: How hard is that decision to take, Amit? Because you also have to go back to your LPs and, and report back about these activities. How quickly and difficult is, or uh, do you have to like construct your fund in such a way that you have supportive LPs who will be um, by your side when you take decisions like these, or this is something- Absolutely, absolutely. Just just like entrepreneurs have their own investors, which we yeah. call VCs. VCs have their
1: own investors, right? The LPs, right? Yeah. So. It's different in some ways, but it's similar in others. It's different in the sense that um, my investors are passive, typically passive investors. So my decision making is the GPs, in my case, my partner Sanjay and I, um, and my LPs, they give me advice, they give me guidance. I have a few who are very active, but at the end of the day, Sanjay and I are making the decisions Mm -hmm. versus for a startup, you as a CEO, you are in charge of the company, but uh, your investors typically are more active with you. They will have a board. You will have to have meetings at a board level where you will make decisions with a board vote. You may control the board, but at some point you usually don't. And it's a decision done in a group. So there's differences between how a VC and LP work and how a startup entrepreneur and VCs work. Yeah. in terms of time horizon, in terms of capital calls, in terms of allocations, in terms of many other factors. But what is true between both of them is that you need to look at this as a partnership. I look at my LPs as basically people I'm going to be working on with, hopefully for the next 40, 50 years. I hopefully have another 40, 50 years ahead of me. I'll build my fund further. I will raise multiple funds. Mm -hmm. I will want the current investors to be involved in subsequent funds. And I don't look at this as a transaction. I don't look at this as you're giving me money. Goodbye. I'll talk to you in 10 years. I'm looking at this as an active relationship. You may be passive in decision-making in the sense that I am ultimately making the decisions to invest or not to invest. Mm -hmm. But I look at it as active in terms of, I want you to be helping me, supporting me, just like I'm also supporting my portfolio companies. Right. So, um, Let me give an example that a startup faces. Let's say the same example, right? I invested in the seed. I got money that I wanted. I got a prorata rights. Now there's a next round. Let's say the next round is a series A. It got heavily oversubscribed. Um, I will have conversations with the CEO saying, okay, this is my prorata. Can I get all of it? Can I get some of it? Can I get more of it? Uh, the CEO will ask me for, can you make introductions for me to other VCs? Who do you think would be good? Yeah. This is the term sheet that came in. Do you think it, it, it works or not? Um, and that's just, I'm talking about the financing, right? There's, there's events like this, financing events like this, that make the VC to uh, entrepreneur relationship very visible. But all throughout the life of the company, there will be also many other decisions. There'll be also many other conversations. Around hiring, around marketing, around product, around strategy in general, that a VC may be able to weigh in.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I'd be, I'm really enjoying this conversation and I would love to like spend a little bit more time here, but I'd be remiss if you didn't talk about healthcare because that's that's your bread and butter. Sure, 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 the sure. The last segment here talking about a little bit more about your investments and how difficult it is to be looking at AI and, and, and healthcare. And one of the things that kind of like immediately comes to mind, at least from my, from my perspective is how do you determine what is the next big trend within healthcare? Like, how do you see that coming? Um, look, you, you, you're asking basically, how does a VC
1: keep up to date? At the end of the day, a VC is um, looking to learn all the time, right? It, a good VC is one who is always open to learning and unlearning uh, and and making patterns, but also being willing to update and break those patterns. So I, I like the 80-20 rule. 80% of what I do is thesis-driven. I I have built thesis in writing and in my head about how the world is, how healthcare is, what the trends are, where the world is going. Um, and I'm constantly updating them. And then 20% is things that I haven't thought of, things that completely, completely surprise me. Right. I have to be willing to... I, to, to um, conclude that what I know is wrong. I have to be willing to do that. Um, I need evidence for it, but that's how the world changes dramatically sometimes, right? Uh, the pandemic right now, I, I, it took me a while to grasp the magnitude of the pandemic. I grasped it around March of last year, but before that I hadn't, right? New information came in. I started seeing what was going on. Yeah. And at that point I said, oh shoot, we're, we're gonna be in this world for at least another two years. Um, same thing what I do as a VC is, I, I see that chronic diseases are now the number one killer in the world, diabetes, obesity, heart you know, things that affect me here in the US are also the things that affect somebody in Mexico, and in Brazil, or in India, uh, or in Africa, they're increasingly um, the, the, the same challenges. And what's happening there? What's happening in terms of telehealth adoption? What's happening in terms of, Data, uh, data not only to do a diagnostics, but also to do predictions, data that can be used for treatments, computer vision that can be used to detect and understand images, Um, machine learning that can be used to process a lot of noise and find out signals and decide whether you have arrhythmia, Um, devices perhaps that can detect your blood pressure without a cuff or be able to detect your glucose from your your eyes, right? Like all of these things that are happening. I have thesis over thesis that I have developed and I'm constantly reading. Um, I think uh, I I read at least an hour a day, uh, maybe more. I I haven't, uh, sometimes I will read more than that uh, between blogs, between articles, between PowerPoints. Uh, I will get on average 2000 decks a year. So that going through 2000 decks teaches you a lot. Uh, and then I learn from the entrepreneurs that I meet. of the two thousand decks, we'll take two hundred of them as a first meeting, hundred of them as a second meeting, fifty of them as a third meeting. So the deeper we go, the more we learn about a particular space. Uh, I personally love to write, and I write once a week, typically, and I publish articles on a variety of topics. and the act of writing is also an instrument of teaching because right. when I write, I learn and I learn from the comments, and I learn from the process of researching it. So, all of these different avenues feed all the time into how I think and uh, and the decisions I make. Um, talking to other co-investors, I will usually talk to another investor, another VC at least once a day, sometimes two or three VC conversations a day. And th- those conversations will always teach us because we will ask, what are you looking at? What are you seeing? And I will say, likewise, this is what I'm seeing At this is what I'm looking at. And uh, my partner, Sanjay, he and I will debate all the time. It's always, this could work because of this. This could work, maybe not work because of this, right? So it's it's. I think it's the, the clash, the constructive clash of facts and opinions that elicits better decisions, better knowledge. Uh, when we invest in a company, we write up a deal memo and we codify right. our knowledge, our learnings, our lessons, our visions. We'll put in 30, 40 hours worth of work in those deal memos. And those codified deal memos serve as guideposts for me not only to make a decision now, but to be able to make decisions in the future. So the short answer to what you're saying is the way to make best decisions is to always be learning and always be willing to share your learning. So I think the process of sharing your learning also teaches you a lot. How you do it, there's too many. Because
0: to like, then you're also open to feedback and criticism from other people. And that kind of like pushes boundaries, pushes your own um, you know learning ability. And more importantly, kind of, creates this scenario of debate and discourse where you're able to go back and forth with somebody or multiple people or groups of people or other investors who push you to think otherwise. And that kind of like helps you develop your own thesis in a better way and start understanding a- absolutely. some certain sectors absolutely which you may not have a complete grasp of. And maybe somebody has a little bit more uh, expertise in the same, in the same sectors. A-
1: absolutely, Akash. Uh, I-, I think the more you know about the topic, the more you realize how much more there is to learn, right? So, yeah. um, there's, there's principles around this. If anybody is curious, but, uh, the, the principle is, um, there's a curve. If you know, very little, uh, it's dangerous. Um, yeah. if you are in the middle, it's really dangerous. And as you go towards the end of the curve, when you know a subject very deeply, you understand what you know and what you don't know and yeah. what you don't know, you're actively seeking other folks who know more about it or know a different part of it. Um, yeah. so Here's another story, right? Like The seven blind men looked at an elephant and they described the elephant in different ways. One of the blind men said, oh, the elephant is furry because they were touching the the tail of the elephant. Another one said the elephant is very hard because they were touching the tusk of the elephant. Another one said the elephant is very soft because they were touching the belly of the elephant, right? All of these answers are right. All of them described the elephant, but nobody had the full picture of the elephant. You needed all the seven men to actually give you that answer. This is, by the way, I think a Buddhist tale on, on understanding the full picture requires more than you. And it requires both the confidence and the conviction that you, what you know is correct, but what you don't know, you should be open to actually hearing from
0: others. I love that. And also goes back to, I mean, I think I read, read about this, maybe in a book. Um, It's more I read, the less I know. That's true. The more
1: I read the the, the more I read, the more I realize how much more there is to learn. I think that's exactly. that's maybe a, another way of putting it, right?
0: Yeah. And I think that's a great skill set for any venture capitalist or any investor is having that hunger to like learn more. It doesn't matter like how many how many investments you're made. The industry is constantly changing and you have Absolutely. to be able to like keep up with it. What you know today is not something you'll know five years from now. And that's the beauty about our industry, the fact that we don't know what's coming, even though we kind of know that there are certain trends. Uh, which are hinting towards certain changes, we still don't know when it happens. And when it happens, there could be tectonic shifts within the industry itself that it kind of then forces us to think outside of the box and more importantly, push push ourselves to like learn about something that's up and coming that we perhaps have never seen. Um, And that's kind of like where, you know, Clubhouse is a great example of how audio became like a thing out of like nowhere. And everybody was like, oh, we want to look at audio stuff all of a sudden, whole of last year. Very similarly within healthcare as well. I'm sure there's sectors that come up every now and then, which kind of like comes comes, uh, brings me back to one of the questions that I had in, why AI and why, or how is AI going to fit into the realm of healthcare in the next few years? And why is that your core focus? Yeah, I don't, so, why AI as a why as, AI as, as, as a particular, as, as technology, but why AI for the fund, for your fund particularly, and how did that come about?
1: It's a bottoms of thesis for us. We see AI as being a horizontal, AI is not a vertical. Every single company uh, that we look at uses AI in a meaningful way. They can do something that's 10x faster, 10x better, 10x cheaper, right? So I I see AI, the revolution that's happening as we speak, as perhaps what happened 15, 10, 15 years ago with cloud or with mobile. Nobody says at this point that I'm building a cloud company or a mobile company. It's understood, right? So AI is going through this transition as we speak. There's a big lifetime, a life cycle ahead of us where we believe lots and lots and lots of AI companies are going to get created. Um, and what we see with AI, once again, AI is not new. AI has been around for 50 plus years as a term, as a modern term, yeah. but there's so much more data. There's so much more computational power. There's so much more uh, acceptance of technology in, in various industries. There's much improved regulations. So all of this has created a storm which allows you to suddenly do things that weren't possible before. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a company called PhytoCure. Um, it is repurposing drugs to treat cancer in dogs. And you're building a large data set out of it that then you can re- leverage to do humans. So, canine cancer as the model for human cancer. Could you have done this without AI? I would argue no. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just so massive amounts of data here, it's incomprehensible for any one or even groups of human beings. a right. machine can help you make more sense of it. Um, so uh, this this company incidentally uh, has saved the lives of more than three thousand dogs and uh, is doing really well. Um, so it's it's AI doing a lot of good in the world, right? like there's there's a trend of thinking here that AI will replace human beings. I don't see that at all. I see AI displacing human beings but not replacing. Okay. AI is a tool. To help you do things that weren't possible before, to do things in a much easier fashion. I'll give you another example. We have a company called Decoded Health. Um, it uses natural language processing to understand um, what a person is saying, what the person is communicating. It's also connected to your EMR, to your medical record, so that when you walk in into a doctor, the AI will help say, okay, this is something serious. You should go see a specialist. You should go see a primary care physician, you should actually go to emergency room or to urgent care, or no, this is a flu, don't worry about it, stay home, nothing to worry, right? So there's a component of diagnostics, and there's a component of triage. Now imagine being able to do that so much more efficiently across healthcare, we are certainly going to help all of us get better healthcare when we need it, rather than having to wait for doctors or getting over-treated or under-treated. We have another company called Infinitus that uses AI when you call in into a healthcare system. And um, here in the US, when you're trying to find out what your insurance covers, most of it is done on the phone. You spend 30 minutes on the phone talking to a human being. What Infinitus has done is it makes 90% of the communication through a machine that knows a lot more about you, that's able to grab your data from the back end, and is able to give you just the right kind of information exactly as you need. Now imagine that you, as a patient, get what you need much quicker, much faster, and also lowers the cost for the providers and the payers, right? Yeah. Providers being the doctors, payers being the insurance, right? So that's a an example of AI cutting at inefficiencies in a m- huge way. And I'll give two more examples to finish this up. There's a lot of paperwork here in the U.S. everywhere in the world, but here in the U.S. is particularly egregious. We spend about a trillion dollars, one third of our GDP. Um, sorry, not of our GDP, one third of our healthcare expenditure uh, in in paperwork. A lot of it is paperwork to give authorizations. Can Akash go and get an MRI? Can Akash go and get an X-ray, right? There's multiple layers of paperwork being shuttled across multiple people. It's very inefficient. If there's AI that can help recognize, it can help move this much faster, you have suddenly now improved the efficiency of healthcare. Mm-hmm. People get the tests when they need quicker, and you save on costs. So I see AI as a way of doing things that weren't possible before, and also cutting back on a lot of inefficiencies in healthcare.
0: And what are the challenges in progressively changing healthcare technology adoption and integrating them into the existing uh, in, into the existing healthcare sector? Like we've seen a lot of these challenges arise lately. I mean, we've seen it happen in last year. Uh, more so than anything else, we we say the U.S. healthcare system is broken, quote unquote. It is. So, <laughs> how do you how do you see technology really changing this, especially in the coming years, with the help of AI, with the help of other technologies, as such? And what's going to be the biggest challenge? Is it is it bringing um, you know government entities and policymakers to be on board? Is it is it is it is it going to be a huge role that's played by by institutions in terms of adopting these technologies? Or is it more about on, on our side, wherein can we actually get, can we, can we with our, the help of our networks, can we with the help of our, our capital and our knowledge fund companies that can then have a direct in, impact by eliminating the need for having to go through all these intermediaries?
1: Yeah, Malakash, no, that's a very deep question. It's very um hard to answer, to be honest, but um I, what VCs do a lot is frameworks, right? They never had. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to share one framework I have, which is, I call it the five P's of healthcare.
0: Mm-hmm. A lot of
1: people say the four P's, I call it five P's. Mm-hmm. So payers, providers, pharma, patients, and policymakers. Right. right? These are different actors uh, within the realm of healthcare. Um, and you need to improve healthcare by acting on all five. Right. Technology is not the only answer by no means. If technology was the only solution, we would have solved so many problems in the world. It is not. Technology is a big lever. It's very important. And I would argue it's it's game changing. But there are challenges in terms of policy that technology cannot solve. And that goes all the way from the county or the city level all the way to the national level and the global level. Right. There are decisions here in the U.S. And in India also around public versus private expenditures in healthcare, should the individual pay for it? Should the state pay for it? How much should be paid for it? When should it be paid for it? What level of proof do you need in order for coverage? How much coverage should it be? Right? Like all of these are questions that different societies and different cultures have answered differently based on their values, based on their history, based on their belief systems and um, technology cannot solve those answers. That is, I would argue a concerted effort between society, between uh, policymakers, between public and private sector and so on. What I do believe what AI can do is remove a lot of inequities and improve what already exists. So I think that both the bottom of the pyramid and the top of the pyramid can benefit from it. When I can provide triage and diagnostics like in Decoded Health, I can help hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people get access to healthcare much quicker. Um, when I improve the, 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 the way I do drug discovery using machine learning, that is helping a small sector in the industry that is extremely, extremely relevant to us, right? Like how we produce drugs has the ability to change 7 billion lives on the planet, right? So it may not be visible to you and me as end consumers right away, but there's lots of downstream effects. Um, so we take that into account that look, AI, is a very, very powerful tool. Uh, And I'm going to end with this little story here, Akash. Uh, 200 years ago, we had also created a very powerful tool at the time. And there was a lot of backlash in society. Some doctors who resisted, some patients who resisted, they all would argue that why do I need this tool in order to understand what's going on inside my body? Why do I need to put numbers? The best way to practice medicine is for the doctor to touch the patient and understand what's going on from touch and feel from all the senses that nature has given us. Uh, It took about 50 years for that particular uh, technology to get adopted widely, at least in Europe initially, and then eventually other parts of the world. We call that technology today the thermometer. The thermometer was in many ways an AI of its time. Now the AI today, is incredibly more powerful than that. It's multidimensional, it's multifactorial, and it's not just one number, right? It gives you a lot more power, vision, and view than what the thermometer did. So I'm, I'm very much of the camp that we should embrace AI. We shouldn't be afraid of it. It will cause displacements. It will cause unlearning and learning. It will require us to adapt. But if we do it well, we can make all of our lives much better.
0: That's that's one of the great notes to end the episode on. But I do want to ask this question before I let you go. I know we're almost done with time here. How do you find the time to train for an Iron Man, come up with your philanthropy, and then continue to also run a fund amongst all the other things that you do? Where oh, are you it finding out? You're too kind.
1: I I I spend most of my waking hours with the fund. Uh, right. How Ventures is what I do. It's hopefully the last job I will ever hold. It's how at least I'm envisioning it. Yeah. Both my partner and I have planned it for 10 years before we started it two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are very happy with where the fund is. Uh, we invest in US and Canada and um, we we will continue doing that and raise bigger and bigger funds and do more and more deals. And more importantly, help our entrepreneurs succeed and, 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 and change the world in a better way. Um, the, the Iron Man that I did was one that was seven years ago. Uh, I, one is quite enough. Uh, I maybe do another one, but I haven't thought of it. Uh, what I do is I exercise, try to do every day and keep myself healthy. And I think that uh, healthy body, healthy mind, right? So I think it's uh, being healthy is the foundation of what I do. If I'm healthy, I can do other things, right? Nice. So uh, I'm very committed to my own health and Um, I'm not perfect at it by any stretch of the imagination, but I I try my best. And as far as the nonprofit, uh, uh, I built a hospital in what is now Charkhand. I went there when I was 19 and I lived in the villages, uh, dhoti, lungi, all of that. And I found some amazing people there on the ground, I partnered with them, we fundraise and we put the hospital together. It's been about 10 years now and it serves a community of 100,000 people. I'm not the hero of the story. I, I, I certainly put a lot of pieces together, but I was in many ways, the, the cheerleader or the VC. Um, the people who really are the heroes of the story are the people on the ground who run the hospital, who take care of the patients, who do all the hard work. What I do is these days, make sure that everything is running appropriately. So I don't spend that much time on it. it it's running on autopilot.
0: You know, one of the things I really like about people like you, the credit for the work goes to all the people on ground. And I just played a small role in bringing them all together and piecing the pieces of the puzzle and making that happen. And I think that's a very strong trait of great leaders. And I think I see that in you and having having had this conversation with you. I mean, I'm really excited about what you're doing at Tao Ventures. I think you guys um, are really pushing the needle on the healthcare front. And I really had a wonderful chat in learning more about your investor personality more than anything else and how you think about working with founders how do you advise them how do you also think about your own investments and the this one anecdote about you taking a step back and saying I'm happy to take a little bit of percentage cut here but if it really involves bringing more investors more strategics to the table I think we're all going to collectively win I think all of this study really shows the kind of investor that you are the kind of person that you are and I really had a beautiful time getting to know a little bit more about this is so candid. And um, not a lot of this really comes across when, you know, you're in a professional setting, you meet at a networking event, none of this actually comes across, but it was really, I really had a great time getting to know this side of you. And I hope a lot of our listeners can also like relate to it, you know, get inspired and more importantly, hopefully at some point, reach out and want to like work with you as well.
1: Oh, wow, Akash, thank you. I, you're too kind. I, I. I don't want to minimize my role here. It's a very important role, whether it's in the nonprofit or the for-profit world, but I want to emphasize it's not the only role. Um, It takes a village, a global village to do anything. I am where I am today because of a global village behind me. Like I cannot take credit for everything I've done. There's been hundreds of thousands (laughs) of people, honestly, that have helped me get here. And that's the role I play also. Whenever I'm part of a startup as an investor or when I'm helping an entrepreneur, there's a collection of people and it's the concerted effort it's right. human endeavor at its best, right? The, uh, the ability for us that differentiates us from practically anything else, any other animal, according to Yuval Hariri, he's a writer I really appreciate, yeah. is the ability to coordinate, is the ability to come together and work together um, and to create stories around it and to basically work towards a goal, right? So I, I play the role very much so where I recognize I'm not, not the only one, that I play a very important role, but there's many other important roles around the table.
0: But this was a great conversation, Amit. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm looking forward to our engagement in the coming future as well.
1: Thank you very much, Akash. And thank you so much for all of you listening. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I um, do read through everything people send me. I may not be able to respond. We just get flooded with so many things. But rest assured, if it's something that's relevant that we can help with, we, we do respond.
0: Well, I personally feel that was one of the best episodes and conversations that I've had with investors here on the podcast. Amit shared a lot of insights about who he is as a person, and more importantly, what his investor persona signifies both for the fund and the larger context within venture capital itself. One thing that really stood out to me, and something that a lot of fund managers and founders can take away, is how he puts together the round for his portfolio founders. I think taking that 10% cutback and saying that he is willing to have more investors be part of the round because they can add a lot of strategic value takes a lot of courage and more importantly, understanding that collectively, if the company goes on to become huge, you still get a huge buy. And that's everything you need to know about venture capital. I had a wonderful time speaking to Amit on the podcast, and I'm sure you all must have had the same listening to him as well. And if you have, and you have enjoyed this episode, as well as the other ones that you've been listening to, I would really urge you to go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast. It really helps others discover the show as well. Now we're gonna continue bringing on some great investors, both from India and around the globe. So I'd love for you to keep coming back and supporting the podcast. And more importantly, listen to some of our great, great guests and take away all of the insights that they're able to share from their experience being in venture capital. And on that note, We're going to end today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Continue to stay safe, everybody. And of course, like always, keep hustling.